All right, well, good morning, everybody. Let's take our Bibles this morning, if we could, and open them to the book of Genesis, chapter 25. And verse 27, Lord willing, finishing the chapter today, which will mean we're halfway through the book of Genesis. People are saying, why are you going, why are you going so fast? Slow down. <laughs> the title of our message this morning is The Price of spiritual insensitivity. We um, are in a section of the book of Genesis where God is raising up a very special nation, the nation of Israel. Isaiah 43 verse 1 calls Israel, or God to Israel, calls Israel his Created nation. That verse says, But now thus says the Lord, your creator, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel. Israel is a very special nation because it's the only nation that God personally brought into existence through his own creative power. In fact, those words, creator, formed, you'll find those in Genesis 1. Uh, those are the same Hebrew words, anyway, used to describe God's creation of the heavens and the earth. Well, just as God created the heavens and the earth, he created the nation of Israel. And when he brought the nation of Israel into existence, he used four people strategically, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. And that is what the second half of Genesis Chapters 12 through 50 are about. So Abraham is now passing off the scene and moving into center stage, so to speak, moving into the divine spotlight is a man named Isaac, the child of promise that we read about earlier in the book of Genesis. And so we sort of, in Genesis chapter 25, which we've been in in the the past several Sundays, is sort of a transitional chapter. It gives you information about Abraham's second marriage to Keturah and the descendants born thereof, verses 1 through 6. Abraham, the man that God had used initially, the father of the nation of Israel, dies verses 8 through 11. Oh, and by the way, didn't he have another son named Ishmael? And what became of his descendants? Well, I'm glad you asked. Verses 12 through 8 covers that. But Ishmael, although God loved Ishmael, Ishmael was not the seed son. He was not the one through whom the promises would come. That would fall to a man named Jacob, and so Ishmael is dealt with very fast, verses 12 through 18, and now the focus becomes Jacob, Isaac's son, and we have the births of the twins, Jacob and Esau, verses 19 through 26, covered that last week, and now we're at the very end of the chapter, verses 27 through 34, which deals with the selling of the birthright. So this morning we're taking a look at the selling of the birthright. Genesis chapter 25, verses 27 through 34 in our verse-by-verse journey through the book of Genesis. And we basically have three things happening here. Number one, the development of the two twins as they become boys, verse 27, and adults. Parents, unfortunately, always have their favorites, and we'll see that in verse 28. And then you have the famous story about Jacob purchasing the birthright from Esau and how that took place in verses 29 through 34. So let us begin, if we could, with Genesis chapter 25, verse 27. I'm going to spend a few minutes on this because there's a lot of 
misunderstandings that have been handed down through Christian tradition. It says in verse 27, when the boys grew up, Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the field. But Jacob was a peaceful man living in the tents. And typically what you hear about that is, well, obviously Esau is the hero. He is the mighty hunter. And Jacob is kind of a sissy. He's kind of a mama's boy. He, you know, it's hard to cut the apron strings and get him out of the out of the house. And we've heard that so many times. You know, we think that's true. I'd like to sort of undo some of that tradition, which I think is bad Bible interpretation, right out of the gate. When it says, "When the boys grew up, and Esau became a skillful hunter." Um, being a hunter, at least in the book of Genesis, and I have no objections to hunting, I'm just saying in the book of Genesis it's not necessarily a compliment. Because the very first hunter that we read about in the book of Genesis is a man named Nimrod, who was orchestrating the New World Order, the first one-world system of government, politics, and religion that excludes God, called the Tower of Babel. In fact, in Genesis 10, verses 8 and 9, Nimrod, his very name in Hebrew means revolt. And Genesis 10, verse 9 says of Nimrod, he was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Nimrod's name means let us revolt. A revolt against God, a one-world System revolting against God. He was the orchestrator of it. And he was a hunter. Uh, Arnold Fruchtenbaum in his Genesis commentary says, Verse 9 deals with Nimrod's relationship to God. He was a mighty hunter before Jehovah. The terminology implies antagonism. Antagonism against and in opposition to God. What was Nimrod hunting He was hunting people. Uh, Here's a commentary that I use often by Jonathan Serfati, and he's commenting on the Jewish Targum, which is sort of a, a commentary in early Judaism on this passage, Genesis 10. And it says, The Jerusalem Targum paraphrases this passage, Genesis 10, 8 and 9, as follows. He, that's Nimrod, was powerful in hunting and in wickedness before the Lord, for he was a hunter of the sons of men. As he said to them, depart from the judgment of the Lord and hear the judgment of Nimrod. Therefore, it is said, as Nimrod, the strong one, strong in hunting and wickedness before the Lord. Nimrod, who exactly was Nimrod? I mean, he was the leader, really, of one world government. We think all of these people today with their ambitions for one world government and their desire to depopulate the human race because we can't have 8 billion people on planet Earth because that's too many people to govern. So let's just cut the human race into half. There's actual quotes I could give you where these one-worlders think this way. We think this is some kind of new thing. No, this was the mindset of Nimrod at the beginning. And as he built his new world order, he was no respecter of human rights because he was a hunter of men. So we have in the Bible sort of what's called the law of first reference. How does the first occurrence in the scripture, use the word hunter. It uses it in a negative sense. And then as we traveled in our verse-by-verse study through the book of Genesis, we came to Ishmael. And Ishmael, Genesis 21, verse 20, was also called a hunter or an archer. Genesis 21:20 says, God was with the lad and he grew and he lived in the wilderness and became an archer. 
Arnold Fruchtenbaum writes concerning Genesis 21.20, he now became a hunter in the context of Genesis. This is not a positive, but a negative. As already indicated with Nimrod, for he too was a mighty hunter before the Lord. So a lot of the teaching that we have obtained and received concerning, gosh, Esau was a hunter, that makes him the hero, you start to see pretty fast that that may not necessarily be the case. Arnold Fruchtenbaum writes, Esau was a skillful hunter, just as Nimrod was a skillful hunter. In the context of Genesis, being a skillful hunter is not a positive statement, but a negative one. This is important because throughout church history, Jacob who we're going to read about here, has received a lot of bad press. In most sermons, especially in Christian circles, dominated by a Gentile, non-Jewish frame of mind, Jacob is painted very negatively and attributes are ascribed to Jacob that are not true to the word of God and certainly do not correspond with God's evaluation of Jacob. So Esau was, verse 27, this hunter before the Lord, Well, who was Jacob, the second-born twin. Jacob was a peaceful man living in tents. It's, it's, um, most people look at that and they say, well, he was kind of a mama's boy. He was kind of a sissy. His brother was the real hero. He was on the varsity after all. And here this kid is, Jacob, you know, kind of hanging around with his mom. But the truth of the matter is, Jacob, unlike Esau, chose to work within the family unit, living within the tents, while Esau rebelled against it by being a man of the field. And this, of course, would harmonize very nicely with God's perspective on these two. Because in the book of Malachi, the very last Old Testament book, some call Malachi an Italian prophet because they pronounce it Malachi, but that would be incorrect. Uh, Malachi, Malachi 1, 2, and 3, God says this, Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord, yet I have loved Jacob, but I have hated Esau. Got to give a little bit of explanation here on hate. Jacob, how I loved. Esau, how I hated. What in the world does that even mean? Uh, God couldn't emotionally hate Esau because John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world. I mean, I thought God loved everybody, which he does. So why does the book of Malachi, why does God say in the book of Malachi, Jacob, have I loved. Esau, have I hated. In the Bible, hatred is referred to as a choice. Let me give you an example of this. Jesus said in Luke 14, verse 26, when he was laying down the criteria for discipleship, he made this statement. He says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. If you interpret hatred incorrectly here, you'll get the impression that, boy, you've got to hate your own parents to walk with God. Obviously that can't be true because the fifth commandment is honor thy mother and father. I mean, how could you hate your own wife and children? What he is doing here when he uses this word hatred is he's not talking about emotional animosity. What he's speaking of here is a choice. When you walk with Jesus Christ as a disciple, if mom and dad say do X and Jesus says do Y, you need to choose what Jesus says over mom and dad. And in that sense, you're making a decision. If there's a conflict between the two, you're making a choice. If you're walking with Jesus and your wife says, do this, but God says, do that, to be a disciple, not to be a believer, 
But to be a disciple, you have to make a decision that you're going to follow Jesus over what family wants. And that's how this word hatred is used in scripture. And so backing up to Malachi chapter 1 verses 2 and 3, when God says, Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated, he's not saying that God hates Esau. What he's saying is God has made a choice between the two brothers. Contrary to what you've, you've heard on this verse, I don't think the choice is some kind of elective choice that this one's going to heaven and that one's going to hell. I think the plan of salvation is is open to both of them. I think there's actually some evidence in the biblical text that Esau was a believer. But he was not the seed son. He was not the one through which the Abrahamic covenant spoken of Genesis 15 is going to be fulfilled. God has made unconditional promises to the patriarch Abraham and God says those promises in detail include including the seed leading to a coming Messiah are not going to be fulfilled through Esau. They're going to be fulfilled through Jacob. And so this sort of evaluation that I'm giving um, where I'm trying to kind of undo some tradition which places Esau kind of on a pedestal and makes Jacob look to be the bad guy, I'm trying to say, I'm trying to undo some of that. And trying to say that the interpretation that I'm giving here actually is consistent with God's rendering and understanding based on his elective choice, not a choice of salvation, but a choice as to which of these children is going to birth the Messiah. Jesus Christ and all of the promises found in the Abrahamic covenant. Now, you'll notice verse 27 because there's more bad interpretation to undo here. I'm reading out of the New American Standard Bible. It's an English translation. It wasn't the translation that Paul used or anything, but it's a, it's a good translation. And as you're looking at this in your own English translation, you'll probably see something similar. It says, Jacob was a peaceful man living in tents. The Hebrew doesn't say that. Uh, It uses a little word which basically is translated, Jacob was not a quiet man. Jacob was not a peaceful man. What it's saying is Jacob was a perfect man. He wasn't sinless, but in his walk with God, he was sinning less. He was upright. He was whole, he was complete, he was blameless before God. And that is the same word that we've already seen in the book of Genesis chapter 6 concerning Noah. It says in Genesis chapter 6 verses 8 and 9, But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the records of the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous and and Righteous man, blameless in his time, Noah walked with God. That's the same Hebrew word that's used here in verse 27. It's just in Noah's case, you'll notice that it's translated righteous or blameless. But very, very sadly here in verse 27, it's translated as peaceful or quiet. But the word isn't translated that way elsewhere. That same Hebrew word is used of Job. Job 1.1. There was a man that lived in the land of Uz, whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, fearing God. You'll see that same translation in Job chapter 1, verse 8. The Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? For there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man. Same Hebrew word. Job 2 verse 3. The Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one like him on the earth, blameless and upright. Job seems to apply that word to himself in Job 9. 20 through 22. He says, Though I am righteous, my mouth will condemn me. 
Though I am guiltless, he will declare me guilty. I am guiltless. I do not take notice of myself. I despise my life. It is all one. Therefore, he destroys the guiltless and the wicked. When it keeps saying guiltless, wicked, righteous, that's our same Hebrew word here translated of Jacob, peaceful and quiet. So this is very interesting. Why is that word always used to describe practical righteousness and everybody else, but it's not used to describe Jacob. It has to do with bad Gentile-oriented tradition where we have already made in our, up in our minds that Esau is the good guy and Jacob is the bad guy. Yet that's not what the Bible's saying. Again, Arnold Fruchtenbaum, who's very helpful on this issue, he says, in other words, this word does not mean quiet, but it means perfect. Why is it not translated that way? Perfect, in other words, rather than quiet. The reason is not because it does not make sense in the text, but rather it does not fit people's preconceived notions about Jacob. More of a Gentile, in some cases an anti-Semitic perspective. This is the first of several examples where the biblical view of Jacob is the opposite from the portrayal of all too many commentators and preachers. So it's very interesting as you start out there, verse 27, you've got these two twins born, and they're both developing and they're both growing. And you shouldn't automatically think that Esau is the good guy and Jacob is the bad guy. But despite God's preferences, parents have preferences. Amen to that? And parents' preferences don't always fit God's preferences. So notice verse 28 where you've got the parental preferences expressed. Verse 28, it says, Now Isaac, that's dad, loved Esau because he had a taste for game. But Rebekah, that's mom, loved Jacob. So for whatever reason, Isaac preferred Esau And this is how it literally reads in Hebrew, because there was game in his mouth. In other words, he liked the idea that his son was a hunter and he got to eat a lot as a result. I mean, that's really not a very spiritual reason for favoring one over the other. Rebecca has the opposite. It says in verse 28, now Isaac loved Esau because he had a taste for game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. So Rebekah's preferences are more consistent with God's preferences. And again, let me reiterate, God is not saying here that somehow he hates Esau. The God loves everybody. What God is saying is the Abrahamic covenant that's coming to planet Earth including the scripture and the savior and the coming kingdom, is not going to come through Esau's line. It's going to come through Jacob's line. Well, why is it going to work that way? Because God made a decision. You mean God can make decisions like that? Yes, he can. That's why we call him God. He didn't take a poll. He didn't take a vote. He didn't look at an opinion survey. He made a decision that the Abrahamic covenant will be fulfilled through child A and not child B. What you'll discover in Islam, very sadly, is it will take these clear teachings and turn them around. And just, it's almost like they come in with whiteout. Let's erase that part of the Bible. Let's come up with an interpretation of Scripture that's more sympathetic to Islam Because after all, at the end of the day, we're one big happy family, right? It's just you need to change your Bible to accommodate us. And the thing to understand about Islam is it's a Johnny-come-lately religion. It doesn't even have an existence until the 7th century A.D. It comes through a vision that Muhammad supposedly received from the angel Gabriel. In fact, when you talk to Muslims and 
they'll mention Gabriel. Sometimes they talk very fast. I was talking to one guy who was was driving me somewhere, and he kept saying uh, Gabriel, I think is what he kept saying, and it took me a while to figure out he was talking about Gabriel. And we would understand the vision that Muhammad supposedly had from Gabriel is Satan masquerading as an angel of light. You say, well, how can you think that way? Is that not politically incorrect to say something like that? Well, I can say it because what came out of the angel to Muhammad contradicts the Bible. And I'm just giving you one of many contradictions. So both can't be right. So when you're driving down the road, we used to have one just maybe, I don't know, two minutes from this church. And you see these big signs uh, put out by a group named Ikna. And they basically have, you know, one Abrahamic faith. And they give you the impression that Judaism is one of those Abrahamic faiths and Christianity is one of those Abrahamic faiths and Islam is one one of those Abrahamic faiths. And we're all on the same page. You say to yourself, well, that doesn't make any logical sense. Because the two are contradicting each other. Christianity is contradicting Islam. Judaism is contradicting Islam. Something can't be A and B simultaneously. And yet Christians know so little about the Bible, and they're more interested in unity than truth many times, they get confused about this. But there's no reason to be confused. One is of God, one is a satanic counterfeit. And so, despite the fact that Islam tries to reverse these around and play all these sort of games with it, God is very clear. I love everybody. Salvation is available to everybody. But in terms of the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant, I'm not going to fulfill it through Esau. I am going to fulfill it through Jacob. Why? Because I'm God and I'm allowed to make decisions like that. So you'll notice that Rebecca, her analysis is more consistent with what God is saying. And we move out of verse 28 into verses 29 through 34, where now you have the story of Jacob purchasing the birthright from Esau. Esau is the firstborn. He has the birthright. Jacob is about to purchase that from Esau. And so we can break it down with these seven points, which we'll go through very fast. But notice, first of all, the occasion of all of this. When Jacob had cooked stew, Esau came in from the field and he was famished. Uh, He was tired. He felt faint. He was hungry. He was out doing his thing as a hunter And he wanted something to eat. That's the occasion. And that occasion moves to the request. You see the request there in verse 30. And Esau said to Jacob, please let me have a swallow of that red stuff there. For I am famished. Therefore, his name was called Edom. Literally, what this translates in Hebrew is let me gulp down some of that red, red. Let me, let me gulp it down. He, he kind of has this, uh, I mean, you can see where his mind is. It's not on spiritual things at all. Because he's about to make a really, dare I say, boneheaded decision. And he's focused on his own appetites. Animal voraciousness. And by the way, that's why the nation that comes forth from Esau is called Edom, meaning red. I mean, it comes right out of verse 30 that we're looking about, that we're looking at here. So Jacob, second born, makes a counteroffer. You see the counteroffer there in verse 31. But Jacob said, first, sell me your birthright. Yeah, I'll give you some of this red, red. You know, this lentil stew that I'm making to satisfy your animal-like appetites. But I want you to do something for me first. I want you, you're the firstborn, I'm the secondborn, says Jacob to Esau. I want you to sell me your birthright. Now, what's interesting is we have something called the Nuzi Tablets. 
You probably haven't been spending your devotional life lately in the Newsy tablets. But they basically, um, they are um, archaeological records which sort of trace and track a lot of the customs that go back to the patriarchal time period, the period that we're studying here. And they corroborate the saleability of the birthright. Arnold Fruchtenbaum says in the Newsy tablets, the birthright was sellable. The firstborn had the right to sell his birthright. Esau's birthright included four elements, physical benefits, spiritual benefits, being in the messianic line, because this is the birthright of the Abrahamic covenant and the possession of the land. I mean, this birthright is something that normally went, always went, I should say, to the firstborn, but the firstborn could sell it. And Esau is about to sell it. Why? Fruchtenbaum continues, Esau did not care anything about the spiritual benefits. That's why I have entitled uh, this message, i got to go back two pages to figure out what the sermon, sermon title was, The Price of Spiritual Insensitivity. I don't care about spiritual things. What I care about is my bodily appetites. Esau did not care anything about the spiritual benefits. Because the spiritual benefits were in the forefront, he did not particularly care to hang on to the birthright. So it's interesting that the Newsy tablets talk about the sellability of the birthright. Why, why are you, why can't we go to a normal church? Why does the pastor bring up the Newsy tablets? It's, and I do this a lot because I want you to understand that when you read the Bible, you're reading history. You're reading a book, and it's been confirmed over and over again by the archaeologists and everybody else that the Bible took place in a credible scenario that is confirmed by the archaeological record. And the reason you need to understand this is your children and your grandchildren over and over again are being told, particularly in the public school system, that what we do here with the Bible is not true history. We're the true historians. I've got the teaching certificate or the Ph.D. in history. We're the true historians. We'll give you history. And you guys in the church, you just go do your religious thing. So they've driven a wedge between history and spirituality, and I'm here to tell you the Scripture doesn't do that. The Scripture will present spiritual truths, obviously it does, but it flows out of a historical context which is totally believable. Just in Israel myself, went to the garden tomb. Now we don't know if that empty tomb was the exact tomb that Jesus came out of, but boy, it sure looks like it could have been that one. I mean, it, it, it fits a lot of the description that you read about in the Gospels. And, and it's, that's what I'm saying is not just true with the resurrection of Jesus. It's true with story after story after story in the Bible. In fact, why do we even call these stories? Why not just call it a historical account? You use the word story, people think you're talking about Jack and the Beanstalk, you know, Veggie Tales or things like that. No, this happened. These are real people. So the distinction between the spiritual and the historical is not biblically true. The saleability of the birthright is something that fits with everything we know. Um, about the Newsy tablets. So Esau, unfortunately for him, agrees to this arrangement, and you see that in verse 32. But Esau said, Behold, I am about to die. Jacob took advantage of that. But I don't think Jacob took advantage of it Unfairly, Esau is obviously exaggerating. Because all he had to do in Isaac's wealthy household is just go to the next tent. 
and get his physical needs met through, through, through some other source. I mean, it's not like there wasn't food available. But this is the problem that we have when we get, become focused on our unmet needs. The unmet need becomes so dominant in our thinking that that's all we think about and that's all we talk about. Sometimes we exaggerate beyond what the facts dictate. I'm about to die. No, you're not. And then you go to the second half of verse 32, and it says there, so of what use then is the birthright to me? The truth of the matter is there's a lot of profit in the birthright. And this is something that is not worth giving away to satisfy your stomach for 24 hours. Yet Esau is making the very foolish decision here to elevate the temporal over the spiritual. There's much profit in the birthright. But what Esau basically is saying here is, I don't care about spiritual things. I don't care about it. What I care about is food. What I care about is appetite. What I, what I care about is what I can see. And so these things of the spirit, they're just not much of a concern for me. So what happens is we now have, unfortunately for Esau, the sale of the birthright. You see that in verse 33. Then Jacob gave, I'm sorry, that was verse 34, getting ahead of myself. Verse 33, and Jacob said, first swear to me, so he swore to him, and sold his birthright to Jacob. Jacob buys, Esau sells. You see the four steps here. Um, actually, the four steps are coming later, but the point is the sale becomes legal. Esau, you have his full-fledged agreement to the sale. Payment is rendered in the first part of verse 34. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate, and he drank, and he rose, and went on his way. Esau, the biblical valuation is he despised the birthright. More on that in a second. But Esau accepts. Four steps are mentioned here. Gave, ate, drank. Actually, five steps if eating and drinking are two different steps. But number one, gave. Number two, ate and drank. There we go. Number three, rose. Number four, went on his way. You, you know, a lot of the preaching and teaching that you get on this is, well, somehow Jacob cheated Esau. But that's not what it says. Certainly, Jacob took advantage of the hunger of Esau. I mean, but this whole thing was out in the open. The problem wasn't Jacob. The problem was Esau, who really didn't have much concern concerning the value of the birthright. And then comes the conclusion to the whole thing. End of verse 34. Thus, Esau despised his birthright. What is happening at the end of verse 34 is God's evaluation of what just happened. This is the biblical evaluation. Esau despised the birthright. That's why he was willing to sell it. What does it mean to despise? To treat as worthless or hold in contempt. In other words, Esau lacked spiritual Sensitivity. This is what the book of Hebrews says concerning what Esau just did in chapter 12, verses 16 and 17. I mean, what does God think about people who really have no spiritual sensitivity? Eternal things, the things of God, but live their life for the gratification of the senses. Hebrews 12, verses 16 and 17 says that there be no immoral or godless person like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal. 
For you know that even afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, even though he sought it with tears. It's interesting that Esau himself, as life began to unfold subsequent to this purchase, realized that he had made a bad move. That's why I'm not of the persuasion that Jacob is in heaven, Esau is in hell. He's sort of evidencing a walk with God where he's conscious of sin that he's committed. And I would attribute that, obviously, to the work of the Holy Spirit. No spiritual sensitivity. Did something that had eternal ramifications because the focus of his life was what he could see and what he could feel rather than the eternal things of God. By the way, Esau is not the only person in the Bible who's done this. Think of a man named Judas who sold out Jesus, Matthew 27, verse 3, talks about it, for 30 pieces of silver. I mean, that's your price for Jesus? It wasn't even gold. It was something of less value of silver. That's your price. Matthew 27, verse 3 says, Then when Judas had betrayed him, he saw that he had been condemned. He felt remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. When we live for the things that we can feel, rather than the eternal things of God, we are the losers. We lose. There's a price that's paid. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 6, Paul says, Yet... We do speak wisdom among those who are mature, a wisdom, however, not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are passing away. Boy, I'm so impressed with this age, and I'm so impressed with the world system, and I'm so impressed with the rulers of the world system. Why would you be impressed with that? They're passing away as we speak. But the one who does the will of God, 1 John tells us, abides forever. Well, G. Pastor, um, wonderful sermon. Um, Let's close in prayer. Great Bible story for the day. Well, not quite. Because what I've just described is the mindset of most Americans as I speak. Most Americans are committing this same sin. They are spiritually obtuse. They don't care about spiritual things. They don't care about eternal things. And they're making an investment that they're going to regret later. Does the Bible talk about the American dream? I think it does. Achieving the American dream is not bad in and of itself. But woe to the person who does it without God. Because Jesus speaks directly into that issue in Luke 12, verses 15 through 21. It says this, But he said to them, Beware and be on your guard against every form of greed, for not even one who is affluent does life consist of the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man was very productive. And he began thinking to himself and saying, What shall I do since I have no place to store my crops? And he said, This is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger barns. I'll upgrade, in other words. I will store all of my grain and my goods there. And I will say to myself, you have many goods stored up for many years. You've got a wonderful retirement plan, in other words. Relax, eat, drink, and enjoy yourself. I mean, if 
If the passages stop there, I would think, well, that's America. That's the American dream. This guy should be commended. He achieved the American dream. I mean, he'd probably be featured on Fortune magazine, Forbes. You know, look at how successful this person is. He's this person we all should emulate and imitate. But then you keep reading in verse 20 where God gives his analysis of this situation, just like God gives his analysis of what Esau just did at the end of chapter 25 of Genesis. What does God say? But God said to him, this is not a pastor speaking. This is not a Christian ministry or missionary speaking. This is what God says. But God said to him, you fool. Wow. What what happened to God being seeker friendly? You fool. Why was this man a foolish? Here's something you haven't thought about. This very night, your soul is demanded of you. And as for all the things that you have prepared, who will own it now? And then Jesus gives the moral truth in the parable. Such is the one who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich in relation to God. Woe to the person who lives their entire life gratifying what they can see and what they can feel and has no mind for the things of God. Because there's something they haven't banked on, even if they achieve the American dream. There's something they haven't counted on. They're not going to be here forever. Like the book of James, many other passages of Scripture tell us that this life is a vapor. It appears for a little while and then it's gone. I mean, just at my time here at Sugarland Bible Church, you know, thinking about the number of people, loved ones in Christ that aren't here anymore because the Grim Reaper came. The mortality rate is still 100%. And to carve out an existence where you're, you know, clawing your way to the top. And you have no thought for the things of God whatsoever. God says that's just a foolish endeavor. You're invested in the things of this world and the rulers of this world who are passing away as we speak, the Apostle Paul says. This is why Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6 verses 31 and 30 through 33 says, Do not worry then, saying, What shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For the Gentiles, unbelievers in other words, in this context, eagerly seek after all these things. For your heavenly Father knows what you need and that you need all of these things. Why live a life as a Christian carving out an economic existence pushing God to the back constantly in terms of priorities when God is the one that's going to take care of you as you go through life anyway. I mean, God, he takes care of the birds. Won't he take care of you? You, You're made in his image. The birds aren't. But seek first, number one priority, seek first his kingdom, kingdom priorities, Kingdom values, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these other things that the Gentiles and America are so wrapped up in. These things will be provided to you anyway. See, spiritual insensitivity, it brings a price. The price is foolishness. Foolish because you're not going to be here forever. And you're living for something that can't stand the test of time. Is it not sad that on Sunday morning during softball time, the cars are packed in like you've never seen them before, like sardines? And when the soft, and I'm not anti-softball, I'm just giving an example. You're driving down the street here and you see everything packed out for softball. 
And I just say to myself, Lord, could you please orchestrate things? Or the time in history will come in Sugarland, Texas, where the church is just as full, if not more full, than the softball field across the street. We're coming up on Thanksgiving. We're coming up on what they call Black Friday, where the business owners depend on that day to turn a profit. Nothing wrong with that, but go to the mall. Look at the packed out nature of First Colony Mall or any other local mall on Black Friday and step into your typical church on Sunday. And you say to yourself, well, where'd everybody go? We're living in a country that values the monetary, what they can see, over the things of God. This is exactly what Esau did in despising or treating with contempt the birthright. It's exactly what Jesus was talking about in Luke 12 when he told the parable or the story of the rich man. How many people will put their career over their Christianity? And there's nothing wrong with having a career, and praise God for careers. But it's kind of interesting how career, in our thinking, has a tendency to take on an importance that's disproportionate to prayer, the study of the Word, the local church. So many people, the career is like this big in their priorities, and the church is over here on the side. Or people will sacrifice their Christianity for entertainment. Or they'll sacrifice their Christianity for vacationing. Or they'll sacrifice their Christianity for family. Hey, it's a family time. Don't, don't bog me down with Sunday morning service, Sunday school, midweek service. I'm going to sacrifice all of that on the altar of family. Aren't we when we act that way and think that way, functioning just like Esau. And when we do that, there's a price tag. Paul in Second Corinthians 4 and verse 18 says, While we look not at the things which are seen. What was Esau doing? He was looking at the things that were seen. What was the rich man in Luke 12 doing? He was looking at the things that were seen. Paul says, while we look not at the things which are seen, but the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporal. They don't last. But the things which are not seen are eternal. I've used um, this illustration before, so if you've heard this before, forgive me of that. But when I was very, very young, my parents would take me to a kind of a nice upscale restaurant, typically around holiday times, and I would watch as a little kid, I remember, the man up front of the restaurant and he was very good at what he did. He could take a block of ice and he could chisel virtually anything out of the block of ice. If it was around Easter time, he could chisel out a Easter egg basket. If it was Christmas time, he could chisel out a Christmas tree or Santa Claus. And the table that we were at was so close where you could see the man working. And you could literally watch the perspiration perspiration oozing down from his forehead. And I remember as, as a little kid, I mean, I wasn't even saved. I wasn't regenerated at all. I would always look at that and say, that is frustrating to watch. Because this guy is so good at what he does. And he's working so hard. But what he's pouring himself into is not going to last because it's made of ice. I mean, this, 
The heat is going to melt it. I don't know how long it would take to melt something like that, but it's obvious it was temporary. And I always felt sorry for the fellow. And yet, if you can get that image in your mind just for a moment, you start to see what most of our lives are like, if we're honest with ourselves. I mean, we're working, and we're struggling, and we're chiseling, and we're perspiring, and yet the very things that we're pouring ourselves into over and over again will not stand the test of time. We need safe investments. I only know of two. The souls of people. Because God has put eternity in the hearts of men. You make an investment in a human being, your spouse, your children, your grandchildren, people you work with, you're investing into something that's going to last. And the only other safe investment I know of is right here in this book. Because Jesus said, Matthew 24, verse 35, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will never be abolished or pass away. The end of the 40th chapter of Isaiah, around verse 31, says, The grass withers, the flower fades. But the word of our God abides forever. I mean, think of all of the things right now you could be doing with your time other than sitting here and listening to this. In fact, there's a lot of people in your life that will tell you you're wasting your time. But God says you're not wasting your time because you're pouring yourself into by way of worship and seeking to understand and seeking to apply as the Holy Spirit surfaces application in our minds. You're pouring yourself into something that will last. And you're not behaving like Esau, who despised the birthright. And so may the Lord, as we end this particular year, 2022, as we get ready for 2023, may we move into this new year as a church and as individuals, as people that want to prioritize our lives the way God does. Amen to that. And so it's interesting how this historical account, right at the midpoint of the book of Genesis, written, the events occurred 2,000 years before the life of Christ, how they, they speak reality into our own lives. History, but with a spiritual application. Of course, the ultimate application is the gospel. We call the gospel the gospel Because gospel means good news. It means good news because Jesus did everything 2,000 years ago. To bridge the gap between sinful man and a holy God. He fixed a problem that we have that we can't fix ourselves. He bridged the gap. He paid the price. His final words on the cross were, it is finished. In other words, there's nothing else to do on this issue now that he has accomplished his mission through his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. He asks us to look backward and to trust what he's done in our place. Yeah, but pastor, what's what's the rest of the story? There is no rest of the story. The story in its totality is Jesus did it all. Now you receive what he did as a gift. And the only way to receive a gift from God, according to Romans 4, verses 4 and 5, is to trust in the one that he has sent. And that's what makes you a Christian. That's what saves the soul. And so as we talk about living for eternal things... The most important thing you could ever do to secure your eternity is to trust in the person of Jesus, which you can do right now in the privacy of your own thoughts and heart and mind. It is not something that you have to fill out a card to receive. It's not something you have to walk an aisle to do. 
It's not something that you have to give money to receive. It is a matter of privacy between you and the Lord, or the Lord places you under conviction, which is what the ministry of the Spirit right now is doing. And you respond to that conviction by trusting in the provision of Jesus. And just like that, you're saved. And the most um, eternal issue in your life is fixed at that point. Because should you die this week, Paul says absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And then as we grow as Christians, God says, you know, do you really want to be like the guy who at the end of his life said, I've spent my whole life climbing the ladder of success only to find that the ladder was leaning against the wrong wall. What a tragedy that would be. And so as God's people, let's press into his purpose and live for things to count. That count. If the gospel is something you need more explanation on, I'm available after the service to talk, shall we pray. Father, we're grateful for this word, this truth, our point in the in our path through the book of Genesis. I pray that these would not just be words on a page or some tale from 4,000 years ago, but these would have real-world implications as we seek to live for you this week. We'll be careful to give you all the praise and the glory. We ask these things in Jesus' name and God's people said.